0: We are definitely living in a new world when it comes to cryptocurrencies and the financial world, uh, taking a look at it and embracing it. This is among our most read stories on the Bloomberg. Fidelity Investments jumping into the emerging cryptocurrency world. They've got a new business to manage digital assets for hedge funds, family offices, and trading firms. Here to fill us in is Tom Jessup. He's head of corporate business development and digital assets at Fidelity Investments. He's in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Welcome to Bloomberg Radio. Hello. Hey, tell us a little bit about what you guys are doing and why you're doing it. And why now?
2: Yeah, so look, I think, uh, folks, look, cryptocurrencies have been around since the Satoshi Nakamoto white paper in 2008. Uh, There's been a lot of interest in the space. Uh, What we've seen is a maturation of that interest to a point where institutions are developing investment theses around allocating assets to this new emerging asset class.
0: So is enough of people, enough of institutional clients, investors saying to you, we're interested in this?
2: Correct. I think, you know, um, what you've seen historically is, uh, retail interest, early adopter interest, and we made an observation about a year ago after several years of exploration in the space that there wasn't a purpose-built platform for institutions who, no surprise, want to do business with other big institutions right. and require a level of service and focus that you know we know, given we serve about 13,000 financial institutions today at Fidelity. So we've taken a lot of that learning and a lot of the exploration that we've done in the space back uh, to 2014. We've packaged that in a new business that's going to deliver institutional enterprise-grade services to um, a variety of investors that want to start allocating to this asset class.
0: Tom, I heard you talking with Eric Schatzker on our TV side earlier, and this isn't about you guys setting up a trading platform for digital currencies. This is about being a custody, correct?
2: Correct. So we will custody or safeguard or safekeep the assets. Uh, We will also provide... A facility for clients who want to trade to access market liquidity. So we will not be an exchange, but we're working with a number of liquidity providers and other sources of liquidity so that our clients can uh, interrogate a number of uh, venues in the market in, in the hope of getting uh, a good fill on their trade. We've been talking about this space obviously for a while here, and obviously watching what happened
0: with the digital currencies over the last year or so—the run-up and then the fallout. But I am curious: Are you guys more interested about blockchain and the potential for that versus? the digital
2: currency side of it. We're interested in both. So back in 14, when we started looking at the space, we were focused on both enterprise use cases for blockchain as a technology, but also the future of digital assets. Uh, and both of those activities still persist. On the digital asset side, we've turned that into a business called Fidelity Digital Assets. On the enterprise side, we still have a large team of folks in our uh, labs group um, looking for applications of the technology you know, within finance and even outside of finance.
0: Really exploratory at this point or even more official?
2: Uh, as far as the uh, enterprise or the, the business?
0: The business overall. I'm just curious because I know you guys have been playing with this and exploring. Yeah.
2: So the business is official. We, uh, we announced today we were in the process of onboarding our first few clients. Right. And we hope to be live generally in the market in early 19. On the enterprise side, we continue to experiment. But I guess what I mean is where are we in this cycle as we explore?
0: You know, is it – I understand you guys have an official business, but I wonder, you know, in terms of the market potential and what it might mean. I don't know. Is it five years down the road? Can you – do you have that kind of visibility at this point?
2: I think it's still difficult. I think folks have been trying to make these predictions. You know, next year will be the year of enterprise adoption or the year after. Right, um, I, I think it's one of these things, like many of these sort of network effect business opportunities, that things are slow going and then you wake up one day and there's a, just a tremendous amount of activity. Right, because, an aha uh, moment
0: almost. Sorry? An aha moment
2: yeah. to some extent. You know, where, where folks have enough um, subject matter expertise in the technology or there's been a lot of, enough innovation where things start to take off. And I'm not sure we're there yet, but we do see based on the institutional demand for our product that large financial institutions are starting to think very seriously about This is an asset class, which, quite frankly, is a derivative of interest in the underlying technology, right? The asset class itself is an expression of the value of the technology. And so uh, our our thinking is that if investors are interested in the assets themselves, they're clearly developing a a strong thesis about the use of the technology more broadly in finance. What's holding it back at
0: this point, both the, the asset, the digital currency asset, and also the enterprise?
2: Uh, Great question. I think there's been a general lack of institutional quality infrastructure in this market. Um, So certainly us announcing what we did today is important. The fact that exchanges and other folks in the space are starting to move and develop services that um, meet the needs of customers uh, is important. Um, Certainly from a regulatory standpoint, more clarity around certain aspects of the space uh, would be welcome. But it's a wonderful push-pull where the commercial side of this and the market demand is driving a lot of these things to happen, so it's a very virtuous-type uh, engagement right now. Are you seeing as much interest globally versus
0: the United States? I'm curious what the, the demand is as you look around the world. I,
2: separate and apart from Fidelity's business in this space, um, you're seeing a, a lot of demand in Asia, um, a lot of demand in the U.S. And, and in Europe as well. But you know, I would say the U.S. and Asia are probably the two poles in terms of demand. Our business were initially going to focus in the U.S.
0: Um, and I'm also curious, because we did see such a run-up in digital currencies towards like the end of last year and yeah. the beginning of this year. Were you guys planning to come out earlier and then kind of waiting to see how the market played out? Or it didn't matter? You knew No, it, it, was, it didn't matter. It there was didn't enough matter. interest.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think we, uh, we have a long-term view that this technolo- there would be lots of types of digital assets issued natively in this technology, so not just Ethereum, not just Bitcoin. Uh, but even real world assets, bonds and stocks, and you've started to see that. So a lot of the investment we're making now uh, allows us to execute against this business opportunity, but positions us well as the broader ecosystem develops.
0: Is there something about being kind of early mover, first mover advantage too?
2: I'm sure there is. You know, the thing that I like about our effort is that, you know, we've been doing basic R&D in the space for a number of years. We, you know, we... You guys have been playing with this, right? We understand that, yeah, we were, you know, mining Bitcoin in 2015. We've run a number of internal experiments. Um, Folks that want to fund charitable giving accounts at Fidelity Charitable can fund those accounts with uh, digital assets. So we have a lot of expertise that we've been, you know, carefully incubating and waiting for the right time to, to release to the market. It's definitely a different environment, but it's
0: interesting to see kind of traditional finance kind of moving into these areas. Yeah. All right. Well, looking forward to hearing more. Um, thank you so much for coming by. Thank you. Good luck with it. Tom Jessup, he's head of corporate business development and digital assets over at Fidelity Investments, uh, based, of course, in Boston, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio on this Monday.
3: Took my whole
0: paycheck,
3: and I know why, why,
0: because I got her. Because All right, everybody. I got her. So Canadian cannabis company, Canopy Growth, I don't know if you saw that uh, news today. They announced they reached an agreement to buy the assets of Eboo. That's a Colorado-based medicinal marijuana research company, roughly... Uh, 19, 19.2 million in cash and also some shares, over 6 million shares. Our next guest has been definitely looking at the business opportunities for legalized cannabis. Greg Portel is back with us, lead partner of consumer industries and retail practice at AT Kearney. He's on the road in Columbus, Ohio today. Uh, Greg, good to have you here. You know, I feel like uh, this past year has been the year of digital, the digital currency world and blockchain, uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly, um, and the opportunities, as well as the same for cannabis. And you guys did some research. Tell me a little bit about what you were looking into, who you talked to, and what you found out.
4: Well, we wanted to understand what the consumer sentiment was, because as companies look at the space, there's obviously a regulatory concern, but then also a concern about how consumers will react to large companies or even small companies really making big bets into the space. So in order to to, to get some perspectives, we actually surveyed 2,000 consumers in the U.S. and Canada to get their reaction to, you know, potential market entrance into, into the cannabis sector.
0: And what did you find out?
4: Well, it's, one, we have an incredibly well-informed consumer base with over 90 percent having some sort of familiarity with cannabis, and then obviously the two different components inside cannabis, one being the the psychoactive THC, and the other one being the more therapeutic CBD. Mm -hmm. So you have a consumer group that's very aware of the the category and the product, probably because of all the the coverage. And then secondly, you have a consumer group that is willing to um, try the product, which when 80% of a a consumer group says they're willing to try products uh, in any category, it's an eye-catching stat.
0: It's an interesting way of looking at it, right? Because we have spent so much time talking about the companies, predominantly um, a lot of companies up in Canada, certainly publicly held companies up in Canada, uh, looking into it. But here's the other side of the equation. That's the supply side, right? But also looking at the demand side. And what you're saying is what? That consumers are interested in this means potentially what kind of market size potential?
4: Well, I think the market size has been well established as a multi-million dollar, multi-billion dollar market, excuse me. What is interesting is that it's not just a single category. I mean, obviously you have cannabis as the recreational use, but cannabis-infused products across other categories really do have the potential to jumpstart what has been static categories in some of the personal care and food and beverage sectors.
0: Well, let's talk about that. We had a couple stories in Bloomberg Business Week last week. We had kind of a a section where we looked at um, the cannabis market and, you know, getting ready for Canada um, to legalize it and... We looked at uh, the wellness drinks, the beverage industry, you know, Coca-Cola saying that maybe we're interested in looking at that. That certainly made everybody kind of sit up and take notice to have such a well-established brand (laughs) say, wait a minute, this might be something we're interested in. But we also looked at the medicinal uh, cannabis market, and that has the potential to be even much larger than recreational.
4: Oh, absolutely. And that's really what you'll see as it's infused into other products. So one of the questions we asked consumers was, would they try therapeutic products infused with cannabis? Again, that they're legal, assuming Mm -hmm. this is a legal category at this point. Right. 55% said that they'd be willing to try food infused with cannabis.
0: That sounds pretty...
4: that interest in trial of a category or of, of um, you know products with the ingredient is pretty high.
0: So, what would be kind of the thing you would want our listeners to kind of know as a result of? your research uh, especially as everybody kind of looks at this market there's still a lot of questions we're still waiting for the regulatory okay certainly here in the united states but i'm just curious what are the kind of trends stories that uh, investors should be watching out for
4: well there's two pieces to it really one it was really about the external market we asked consumers what their perceptions would be of brands that became associated with cannabis, both brands and companies. Mm -hmm. And over 80% of the consumers had either a neutral to improved perception of the the company. So the fear that entering the cannabis market or entering uh, infusing products with cannabis would hurt a company doesn't seem to be true. Uh, It actually has a higher probability of enhancing the brands than it does hurting the brands. So that's an important piece of it. The second piece is around the importance of having agility as these companies start to respond, because as you pointed out, the regulatory environment is very unknown.
0: Yeah, there's still uh, certainly a fair amount of questions. Um, Hey, good to check in with you. Uh, Get your, you know, kind of find out what's on the mind of consumers when it comes uh, to this market. So we'll see
1: what's a beginning and what's an end, but there is certainly an end that is upon us for Sears, an iconic American company to say the least. This story really gaining a lot of momentum on the Bloomberg all day and really uh, toward the end of last week as well uh carol we want to understand the context here and for that we have one of our favorites bert flickinger uh you are here with us you've watched this company for a long time you understand the retail space as well as anyone tell us to start what does this mean like what, what what's the the real
3: headline here jason and carol it's an unbreakable company that eddie lampert broke it should be viable uh Arthur Martinez from Saks, Bob Mettler from Macy's built it back into a powerhouse in the 1990s with Young and Rubicam as the softer side of Sears. And then in my professional view, it's like it's being looted between the private equity people who are Bush leaguers when it comes to retail. Ackman was the same way, leaving Penny on Jeff's desk doorstep before Mike Ullman saved it. And then the bankruptcy firm's Toys R Us made 780 million the 12 months before the bankruptcy and then Kirkland and Ellis uh bill over $800 million and bankruptcy judge Keith Phillips lets them get away with it, Bob Drain the bankruptcy judge and these other bankruptcies so we work a lot with the brands and the vendor community, they're furious about Sears Canada, don't think they're going to be supportive with Sears America and it's better off being in somebody else's hands at this point
0: Well that's interesting, I mean is there a future for Sears? I mean this is where I'm like do we need a Sears in the retail space? Should there be a Sears in the retail space? Carol there should
3: be a Sears, we need a Sears, but the company's been so gutted. So if you look at the comparable of Frank Blake when he was at Home Depot, he bought about 40 of them, thought it'd be a few hundred thousand a store to clean them up. Turned out there was no CapEx for 10, 15 years. So he gave most of them back because it was millions to convert. So now if, if it's Willowbrook Mall, could be converted to a Dave, Dave & Buster's, uh, Canisius High School where or Canisius College where I grew up in Buffalo, the cornerstone of the Sears, which was the biggest property in Erie and Niagara County. It's a big part of uh, Canisius College. Uh, but sadly, there should be a Sears uh, why? Why
0: though? Why? Why in this retail environment? There's a J.C. Penney. There's I feel like there's a Walmart. There's, there's an Amazon. There's an Amazon.
3: But Sears is is like um, you and your team reported so well today. Is Sears was a shopping mall unto itself. The Sears catalog was the biggest uh, retailer in America. Sears can't replace Amazon, but it should be competitive with Amazon. And the ultimate unreported irony is the head merchant for Sears, Kurt Avalon, developed uh, takeoff, e-grocery, and delivery, which is roboticized retail for everything from food to fashion. And Eddie Lampert let him walk out the door. He just opened the first robotics supermarket in Florida and then is doing the same thing across America. So Lampert had geniuses like Kurt, Lisa Schultz, who did all the Land's End great work in front of him, great people, great merchants – but a a loser of a leader.
1: So I I want to press you on this point a little bit because certainly at some point, Sears had a chance to stay relevant in a very competitive retail space that you know uh, all too well. Talent notwithstanding, what is it What is the new Sears? What would a new Sears look like? What does it have to offer uh, the consumer that 's not out there right now?
3: A new Sears would be a one, one stop shop jason it 'd be softer side of Sears. They would lead in electronics and gaming as they did when Mar, uh, Martinez and Metler and um, Meg Rist and Liz Williams teamed up. David Boys, the great lawyer. Um, bought all his suits at Sears to argue cases in front of the Supreme Court. Great fit, great style, great price, and you could uh, get the car repaired, you could get the best tools, you get the best appliances. You wouldn't have to go anyplace else. The service was fantastic, lifetime guarantees, and with all that, it was a very fast, efficient shop, and if you didn't want to go there, you could get the catalog, and all that got sublimated up to the sky.
1: So it sounds like what you're talking about a little bit is Target. I mean that that that's essentially that's how my family treats target right, is right. you know you go there's just about everything you need heavy on the electronics huh. and some of the some of the media stuff household goods as well so if i've got target why do i need sears i'm intentionally pressing you on that
3: yes obviously. and 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 i'm and it's very important that you do because sears had auto so uh, my grandfather george gordon who was a public school teacher in buffalo and a coach and referee he had, he had 800 square feet and over 1,000 tools. So he would go to get his craftsman tools. My grandmother, who was also a public school teacher and did the first fashion syllabus, Violet Gordon, she'd take her students there. They would get their... uh, Fabric uh, to to design clothes uh, for plays for the department stores and you could get everything. So yes, Target, but Target doesn't have the hard lines okay. that uh, Sears has in terms of the tools and the appliances, and they don't have the auto. So there's no place in America where you could go for a one-stop shop. And Montgomery Ward's, which um, senator elizabeth warren to her credit when her father worked there and he got laid off and lost his benefits she said when wards went which was run by one of the brennan brothers that ran sears sears should have stayed forever just as wards could have been viable but it was gutted by wall street people and senator warren's father and her family uh was really financially impaired for years and a lot of people are across America the same.
0: So let me just ask you. So what, what might be the future? What might we see? Because I think they've sold off some of their best locations in terms of real estate, which was supposed to be initially, I thought, the play that Andy Lemp, or that was where the value is. Oh. And initially when he came in, we thought, oh, this is great. He's you know, He seems like a smart guy and he's going to figure this out. What What might we see or how might we see? You talk to people in this industry. What might we see next for Sears?
3: You'll you'll see the customer accounts have cratered so much, even in the best locations they've been impaired. So you'll see Chris Baldwin, the dynamic retail leader of BJ's Wholesale Club, Uh, convert locations Uh, you'll see uh, Walmart to Jason's point uh, a lot of great locations for Target because Target Mm -hmm. does its best when it's in a mall and Sears is in a mall where there were restrictive covenants to keep a discount retailer from Target to being in the mall so this way Target goes from the shopping center to the mall and uh, that's what you'll see for Sears' target on one side and on the price impact uh, club side you'll see uh, chris baldwin and david pico who chris astutely hired uh, from toys r us who's head of worldwide real estate brilliant uh convert a lot to bj's wholesale
0: just got 30 seconds left here but does it survive does sears survive
3: we're hoping for the best fearing the worst one word no
0: yeah, it
1: just, I, can't, I don't see how it. I mean, I, I don't. I know far, far less. Bert Flickinger has forgotten more than I well, know about this, but I have to agree with him on
3: this.
0: And my feeling was when we, we were thinking about this, I'm like, why didn't it happen like three years ago yeah, or four yeah. years ago, like I, that?
3: Yeah, it should have. And our, our families. Uh, Started uh, Woolworth, uh, Leggett Drug Stores, IGA, uh, yeah. Red and White, James Way before Walmart, Target. And for whatever we did in retail, Sears was the best in world history yeah. and still should be today.
0: All right, gonna leave it there. Hey, thank you so much. Bert Flickinger, he's managing director at Strategic Resource Group. Uh, lucky for us uh, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. When it comes to retail, he's our go to guy, so we really appreciate it.
5: I'm driving in my car.
0: It is time for the drive to the close. Just about 11 minutes uh, to today's closing bell. Uh, Let's bring in David Dietz, founder, president, and chief investment officer, actually chief investment strategist at Point View Wealth Management. Roughly $340 million in assets under management with us uh, on the phone from Summit, New Jersey. David, great to have you here with uh, Jason and myself. Before we get into uh, some of your investment thoughts and investment plays, anything of note in terms of the trading that we've seen over the past week, the increased volatility? bigger swings in terms of the equity averages. Uh, is it significant to you?
5: Well, I, I think it is. I think what we saw is basically an interest rate shock. We've been told by the market pundits that because of the strong economy, the very strong earnings, this market can withstand a gradual increase in interest rates, a gradual reversing of the quantitative easing by the Federal Reserve. But when we saw uh, interest rates spike to uh, close to 3.26% last week, the wheels kind of came off the wagon and the market had its worst week since March. So right now, I think investors here are rethinking the relationship of market levels earnings and interest rates and try and decide what this market can take in terms of further interest rate hikes before uh, people have to take shelter.
1: So, David, I also want to ask you about something that is very much in the news, and that is coming out of Saudi Arabia last week, over the weekend, more headlines today. Obviously, it's a closely watched story for a lot of political reasons, a lot of candidly human rights reasons but also the oil market clearly keeping a close eye on this. As an investor, how do you look at this story?
5: Well, you know, it's almost impossible to play it because no one really knows what happens. One thing, however, we can say is if tensions escalate and there becomes a, a, a full scale tiff between the United States and Saudi Arabia, then sanctions perhaps are imposed on Saudi Arabia. That has the potential to push oil, price, oil prices up dramatically. And of course, you're talking about fossil fuels, uh, one of the most widely used commodities on the planet. Um, that would be a, a huge wet blanket on the global economy and could be a real systemic shock. I think the odds of that are quite low. No one wants that to happen. But we can't dismiss the risk entirely. And we are, of course, seeing oil prices move up here in the wake of uh, that activity.
0: I feel like one risk we can't dismiss either and maybe is more attainable or a real risk, and that is earnings growth, revenue growth slowing down.
5: Well, so, you know, it's it, it's a mixed bag here. The The good news is quite clear. We're going to have Q3 earnings here that are up nearly 20% year-over-year, that's remarkable. That's extraordinary. Here's the problem. The problem is it's a little bit less than Q2. There's a little bit of deceleration, problem one. Problem two is, of course, um, what we're talking about is now fully priced into the market. So, you know, it's always that question: is is not how good you are, but how good you are relative <laughs> to expectations. Right. That's why we're going to have to listen so closely to earnings announcements as they come up here. And of course, it's not just the earnings announcements, but what is the forecast? It's always about the future, Carol.
1: Well, let's go a level down on earnings if we can, David, and talk about banks because we've started to get the results from several of the big banks. We got a few. Uh, on Friday, more this morning, more to come this week. Anything that's jumping out at you that is especially positive or negative there?
5: Well, certainly I think the positive is that there is strong consumer loan demand, and uh, people want to borrow, and banks have the money to to lend. They are benefiting from the tailwind of higher interest rates. The way that works is as interest rates go up, they're able to raise the price of their loans faster than the cost they have to pay to depositors to their net interest margins go up. So that's all the good news. Where we are seeing differences between the various banks is the level of investment banking activity. As Brian Moynihan said this morning in terms of Bank of America, they could be doing better in that regard. And of course, uh, trading volumes in both equities and fixed fixed income are a mix. Fortunately, right now, we're not seeing any deterioration in in loan quality. There's no charge offs So right now, it looks like banks are in pretty good shape here um, going forward.
0: Let's talk about some of the areas you like in this market environment. That includes emerging markets, uh, international markets, uh, and also consumer staples. Emerging markets, you feel like the worst is over? You know, so the valuations
5: are so much in favor of uh, emerging markets. If you look at uh, indices, which are proxies for them, you see much higher growth rates, um, significantly lower price to earnings ratio, and dividend yields, which are uh, almost 40% higher. So, what's not to like? Well, the problem, of course, is you've got. They can always get lower, (laughs) they can always go lower. Carol, you're absolutely right. Valuation is a great long-term guide to your investments, but it's a poor short-term timing tool. We just don't know where the dollar is moving, where interest rates are going. Um, so, what we are advising our clients is, as you, to rebalance here, but rebalance slightly offshore, and particularly in the emerging markets. Take advantage of those higher dividend yields. Take advantage of the fact that they're really in a bear market. I mean, investing 101 is buying. Less low-selling high, and you've got the emerging market indexes down over 20 percent since their late January highs. So we see that as long-term attractive. A lot's going to depend on the the course of uh, the trade wars. A lot's going to depend on the course of uh, commodities. But we do think with the strong demographics, stronger growth rates, long-term, you could be a winner there.
1: Great stuff. David Dietz, founder, president, and chief investment strategist at Point View Wealth Management, joining us on the phone from Summit, New Jersey. Always good to catch up with you, David. And Carol, I did want to mention one headline that grabbed my attention related to uh, bank earnings and that is around B of A talking about their investment banking fees slipping. They've been losing share to rivals and I think especially some of those boutiques. It's one of the most fascinating little elements of the Wall Street world. I can't get enough
0: of it. Yeah, and the stock is down as a result, down about 1.6%. It was down almost uh, more than 3%, but uh, coming off those lows.
1: Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio.